From the Journeys of Belonging to Blackness Digital Media Project, I'm India Lorik Wilmot, and you're listening to the podcast, Talking Journeys of Belonging to Blackness. Joining us today is Dr. Courtney Desiree Morris. Courtney is a visual conceptual artist, writer, social anthropologist, and assistant professor of gender and women's studies at the University of California, Berkeley. At UC Berkeley, she teaches courses on critical race theory, feminist theory, Black social movements in the Americas, women's social movements in Latin America and the Caribbean, and is working on her forthcoming book, Defend the Sunrise, Black Women's Activism and the Geography of Race in Nicaragua. As an artist, Courtney works primarily in the fields of photography, experimental video, installation, and performance art. Her work examines the complexities of place, ecology, memory, and the constant search for home. In her art, Courtney is concerned with understanding the ways we inhabit place through migration, ancestry, and shared social memory, and also how places inhabit us. In fact, this past winter, she had a showing at the Ashara Ikoyandayo Gallery, and I hope I said that correctly, uh, in Oakland, California, called Adjust Your Eyes for This Darkness. Welcome, Courtney. Thank you. It's so good to be here. <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm so excited, and I am a huge, huge fan of your work, both your writings and your art. Thank you. Particularly in the ways in which you, you use your scholarship and your art to intentionally highlight narratives that are often ignored or ones that disappear from our collective history. And, you know, that's sort of the space that I like to be in, even as a sociologist myself. So I appreciate that. Plus, I enjoy the ways you place self, self mm-hmm. in various geospatial um, and emotional spaces as both an outsider and an insider, right? So this type of subjectivity um, mm-hmm. that we see that's in your art and the ways in which you pay homage to the ancestors. No, it's a great platform. I'm really happy to be on the program and to have an, an opportunity to engage with your listeners. Act one, call to adventure. So as a creative as an artist, a writer, professor, there are paths we take and processes we engage in. How did you become interested in doing the work you do today? Well, you know, I mean, it's interesting to sort of reflect on that question and and kind of look back on your life. And, you know, you often have the moment, like the experience of looking at your life and thinking like, wow, how did I get to this point? You know, because when you're making choices, you don't always, you can't anticipate or predict the future, you know, mm. and sort of where your path is going to lead you. And sometimes you start thinking that you're, you know, that you're going to do one thing and then you end up taking some interesting turns that you didn't really plan on. Uh, and I think, you know, for me, I mean, part of it was that, um, you know, I grew up in a really creative household. Um, my mother's a self-taught painter. Um, I remember growing up and like talking to her mother my grandmother and her telling me stories about how my mother would paint these, you know, these massive murals. I think when she was in high school and she was going to this recently desegregated school, she painted this enormous mural that was dedicated to Parliament Funkadelic and George Clinton. (laughs) 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 
that she then like, you know, hung in my grandparents' bathroom for six months while she finished it and then took it piece by piece to school and, and hung in the cafeteria in school for like the whole year or something. Or wow. like, yeah, when she dated my, when she started dating my father, she would paint him all these portraits. And so she painted him one with like Bootsy Collins in it and like, you know, another one of like a black man and a black woman naked with these huge Afros embracing. Um, and so, that. yeah, it was really sweet. And, you know, and as a kid, she would sit down and like, you know, we would do oil painting together and like watercolors and all kinds of stuff. And so I think, you know, from her, you know, I learned kind of the the necessity and the value of beauty in our lives that we all need and crave to be surrounded by beauty. Mm. Um, and I also think that in terms of, you know, kind of the spiritual dimensions of my work, I get a lot of that from her too, because she's a really devout um, born again Christian, but like she would get up every morning and pray and like walk through the house praying. And, and I come from a line of preachers and ministers and, you know, healers and root workers, which I learned much later, but mm. you know, that's sort of the centrality of spiritual practice in our lives. And like the idea that God is not like some big kind of like person in the sky that you're afraid of, but that God is someone that you can talk to every day. Um, was definitely a part of like the way that I grew up. And, you know, my father is also super creative. He's like the most amazing gardener and just like anywhere we ever lived, he would just turn these empty kind of dead lifeless front yards into these beautiful landscapes. Um, And I think I just kind of took a lot of inspiration from his ability to just transform whatever environment he was in um, and by, by working with the earth. Um, Hmm. And so I think that the way that I grew up was really central to kind of shaping my early path and and really, you know, having a real deep appreciation for aesthetics and art and creativity um, was definitely a part of how I grew up. And then once I left home and I went to college, you know, I had the kind of amazing and serendipitous experience of encountering Black feminists and Black queer artists um, very early on. So when I was about 20 or 21 years old, I became a part of a group called the Austin Project that was housed at the University of Texas at Austin. And it was a project that brought together scholars and artists and activists to use art as a tool for healing and social transformation. And the anchor artist for that program was um, a playwright and novelist named Sharon Bridgeforth, who became one of my personal mentors and kind of like one of my art mamas. Um, <laughs> and her partner, Omi Jones, was another person who welcomed me into that space and, and could sort of see my potential and was like, okay, let's take this little, this little rowdy colored girl look like she might be, you know, she might be an artist. So let's, let's, you know, engage with her. And those women really changed my life because then mm-hmm. I ended up meeting all of these people who were making work, whether they were novelists or poets or playwrights or, visual artists or performance artists, they were all working to create spaces where, you know, they could make art that was um, really rooted in ideals of ancestor veneration, Mm. of reclamation of of the Black past, you know, but also sort of looking to the past in order to imagine a different kind of future where Black life and sort of the, the full range of Black social life and Black creative expression, you know, could could thrive. And so I really kind of think about, I really kind of credit those two sort of streams, if you will, of like Mm -hmm. how I was raised by, you know, my blood family and then the ways that I was mentored and nourished and nurtured by 
this chosen creative family that I encountered when I went to college. Um, so I really think that that's where, that's sort of the beginnings of how I became interested in, in much of the work that I'm doing right now. I can identify with all that you've said. And so I appreciate just in the ways in which you're being, you know, reflective because it's just like the context of the, of the household and the different ways people have expressed their creativity has helped to inform even your own consciousness. But I mean, would you say that you were, even as a child, like, oh, I'm an artist too? Oh, yeah. I mean, I think my sort of path to being an artist is really interesting because I feel like I began as an artist and then I went to college and became an anthropologist and sort of took this crazy academic detour (laughs) and now have somehow, you know, come full circle back to that original intention of, of being creative and using work, using my work as a platform to create beauty in the world. I definitely was, you know, a very creative and precocious child. I learned how to read when I was four. Um, So I was reading well before I went to school. And, you know, I used to like write my own little stories and I would write poems. I've always identified with those stories, like, you know, like when you read W.E.B. Du Bois' The Soul of Black Folks, and he Mm -hmm. tells that sort of pivotal story of like, going to school for Valentine's Day and giving a little white girl a Valentine's. And she is like, I don't want your, you know, I don't want your little black Valentine, you know, and, and, you know, little baby Du Bois is all hurt about it. <laughs> um, and he was quite young. And, and I remember being very young and having a very clear sense of being black. Mm. Like I grew up in a, in a kind of environment where, um, you know, I've always identified with Zora Neale Hurston when she talks about like, I didn't grow up tragically black. Like, I didn't grow up with some sense of, like, oh, being Black is a horrible thing to be. I actually grew up in an environment that was very uh, affirming in that sense. So, you know, there wasn't a sort of story of, like, you're better than anybody else. But the but the the way I was raised was, like, you are a human being. You're a child of God. You shouldn't let anybody talk to you any kind of way. Stand up for yourself and we'll always back you up. Mm. And so whatever sort of other complexities and like dysfunction <laughs> I might've had in my family environments, I felt my family environment to be a very loving and like safe place where I was, where I was affirmed on a lot of levels. When I was like eight years old. I remember my father giving me like three books. What was like, you know, like one of Frederick Douglass's autobiographies. Another one was like selected speeches of Malcolm X. And the, th- the third one was like, Selected poems by Claude McKay, who is a very well-known Jamaican poet um, who was quite famous during the Harlem Renaissance. For listeners who don't know, you should check him out. Um, And I mean, who gives these books to an eight-year-old, first of all? Right, I was going to (laughs) say. And so, like, and I got really into it. And so, you know, I love the poetry. I love the fact that Claude McKay was Jamaican, like my father. And I kind of felt this really deep connection to Jamaica. And then, you know, growing up... um, I was an army brat, but, you know, once my parents got out of the military, we lived in Texas and my mother's family is from Louisiana. Mm -hmm. So we spent a lot of time going to Louisiana and I felt very connected to, I felt very connected to both the Jamaican and the kind of Southern Louisiana side of my heritage. Mm. Um, And so, you know, I, I think like one living in an environment where blackness was really valued and affirmed that I was told I was pretty, that I was told I was smart, that you know, that I was special and that people saw my creative gifts and really nurtured them. Mm. So, you know, like my mother would buy me journals and I would, you know, write my little stories in there. And 
some of them were like, you know, bees and things and flowers. And some of them were like, you know, I'm black. You know, it was like all the, (laughs) all of the stuff was in there. um, And all of it was affirmed. And so, you know, that was kind of an important part for me, I think, of just like growing up in an environment where people had high expectations of you. Like the expectation was that you were going to do well in everything that you wanted to do. Mm -hmm. Um, And then beyond that, you know, to some of the stuff I was sharing earlier, it's just like I grew up in places where I just saw people creating beauty all the time. You know, Mm -hmm. so like when I would go and visit my father's mother in South Florida, where the Jamaican side of the family, for the most part, live, you know, I just have memories of like walking into her living room. It's like classic West Indian grandma living room, right? Like the way the women in my family dressed, you know, Mm -hmm. just like aggressively feminine and glamorous, you know, like just how they would get dressed up and, and, you know, watching these black women put on red lipstick and go out and go to church. And there was just like such a dignity and such a beauty to my family that Mm. I grew up with. And I was like, Oh, these are my heroes. Like I want to look like my mother when I grow up. And now I do. Um, Wow. And I want to be, I want to be like the women in my family, you know? And so I think I just took a lot of pride in where I came from. And that is definitely a part of, I think, what continues to drive my work now. Of all things to study, you pursued a doctoral degree in a very academic route, but through social anthropology. I mean, anthropology is, you know, it's, it has its own challenges and its own sort of problematic history as a kind of the sort of the paradigmatic colonial discipline. But, mm. um, you know, one of the things that I like Papua about New it, Guinea. <laughs> yeah, you know, go study the Kula Ring and, you know, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> There's like little hand, little handmaidens of empire, but, you know, intellectual handmaidens of empire. But I do think that there's something, you know, again, to sort of reference Sorono Hurston, you know, in her novel, Their Eyes Are Watching God, there's like mm-hmm. a scene with Janie and her homegirl Phoebe at the end of the novel. And Janie says to Phoebe, you know, you got to go there to know there. You know, mm-hmm. can't anybody tell you about a place. You, if you want to know a place, you got to, you got to go there. You got to experience it. You have to inhabit it. And then you can tell people what you learned, you know, but yeah. everybody has that moment in your life where it's like, you got to wander for a little bit. And I've always really, I've always really believed that. Like I, when people are like, Oh, I wrote a book about a place and I only spent a couple of weeks there. I'm just like, what? <laughs> How do you know that place? You know, when anthropologists go and visit a place, we go there and we're, you know, we're going to be there for at least a year and set up shop and right. really try to understand the, the patterns of daily life and, and, you know, the relationships that comprise the social fabric. But, you know, I kind of came to anthropology really, uh, you know, I would say by happenstance or by mistake, but, you know, that's not really what I believe. I believe that everything that happens to us happens for a reason, you know? And so Mm -hmm. when I was an undergrad at the University of Texas at Austin, I had become involved in a bunch of kind of like radical student organizing. And there was an organization called African Americans for Radical Organizing that had lapsed and had become defunct. And me and a bunch of other students wanted to revive it. But in order to do that, we had to get a faculty mentor Um, an advisor to work with us. And so I went to the Center for African and African-American Studies, which at that time was being directed by Omi Jones, who I mentioned earlier is one of my art mentors. 
and by an anthropologist named Edmund T. Gordon, who also became one of my mentors and ultimately was my um, the chair of my dissertation committee. And I met Ted and Ted was kind of like, who is this little girl like rolling in here with an Afro and like a tank top, (laughs) you know, just looking like a hippie coming in here asking me to do something. And, you know, I somehow he had gotten his hands on something I had written, an essay I had written. And at that point, you know, he was sort of like this, you know, you write well, you seem like you have some, you know, some interesting ideas. You know, I was sort of coming into myself as a black feminist at that point and was doing a lot of kind of thinking about, you know, the politics of race and gender and sexuality um, in African-American and diasporic life. And so he invited me to become a research assistant, which was really rare for undergrads. Um, Those were positions that are typically reserved for graduate students. Hmm. And I worked for him for a year and it went really well. And the following summer, he was leading a team of graduate students and faculty who were looking at um, conducting a project that was funded by the Rockefeller Foundation to examine um, anti-Black racism in Central America. And he works primarily in Nicaragua. He wrote a really important book called Disparate Diasporas. That was one of the first ethnographies on Afro-Nicaraguan peoples, um, like the history and culture and politics of Afro-Nicaraguan communities. And so he was like, hey, I got this project happening this summer. You seem like you're really good at this research thing. You know, you you get the work done. Do you want to go to Nicaragua? And I was like, yeah. And I didn't know. I didn't know anything about Nicaragua. <laughs> like I had some vague notion of a war and a revolution. And I, I had no idea what I was doing. And I went Did you at least know how to speak Spanish? No. <laughs> I spoke very little Spanish at the time. It was embarrassing how little Spanish I spoke. But I went, you know, and, mm. and I learned a very valuable lesson, which is just because you don't you don't know how to do something is not a good enough reason not to do it. Um, Amen to that. You know, you, like you can learn along the way and it's fine. And I went down there and I connected with a bunch of Black women activists who were involved in a a lot of work around Black land rights, around education, um, ending violence against women. And I thought, wow, this is a fascinating place because they were, you know, Black people in Nicaragua, the ethnic group that they belong to, they refer to as Creoles, but they're completely different from like the dominant culture. Like Nicaragua, you think about Nicaragua, you think about a kind of Hispanic, quote unquote, mestizo, Spanish speaking, Catholic culture. And, you know, Creoles in Nicaragua are much more Caribbean than they are Latin American in that sense. So, you know, they speak Creole English. It sounds, it's, it's quite similar to like Jamaican Patois. Um, you know, they're Protestant, they're not Catholic. The diet is very Caribbean, like cooking with coconut milk and rice and peas and plantain, the bread kind, you know, <laughs> um, all of that. It's a, it's a, and they have their own very complex political history. And so I went down there and just got really interested in what was happening there. And that evolved into my dissertation project. Wow. Um, and so that's how I ended up becoming an anthropologist by, by accident. And yeah. I, I love that. And then you came back and you were just like, yes, this is what I'm going to do. I mean, I think so much of my work now is about thinking about the relationship between like blackness and place mm. and like how the ways that we think about what it means to be black is really shaped by the landscapes and 
like the physical landscapes and also the social environments that we, you know, that we inhabit. And like, when you go to Nicaragua, like there are no, like black people in Nicaragua are, are black in their own particular way. That for me is just utterly fascinating. And, you know, and I think that that sort of fascination with like, how do people experience blackness in different places? Like what, what links us across these different landscapes, but also like, how geography shapes the way we think about our identities in different ways is just is endlessly fascinating to me. So in a way it was like, now I think sometimes there was a moment where I thought like, Oh, I should have just gone straight to making art. But I think the experience like of making the detour and becoming an anthropologist was really useful in the way that it opened me up to new places, but also like gave me the tools to really think very critically about the relationship between like black identity and like how places shape the way we experience Blackness. And that's what I like about your writings as well as your art, because there's this interesting outsider-insider perspective around the experiences of Blackness. And so when I think about art, I do think about the fact that it is subjective, but part of the artist's or the creative's um, approach is the presentation of it should be palatable enough that the viewer is able to see themselves or to see certain things reflected back at them that resonates in a powerful way. Mm-hmm. And I think in your work, that outsider insider, so you self-identify as someone of who, who's an African descendant by ways of the Caribbean through the South from part of Louisiana, but then mm-hmm. even just your experiences gives a particular presentation that you're like, I recognize that there are synergies in terms of this notion of Blackness, but the ways in which I'm performing this is going to resonate directly with some. And with others, they may not necessarily have parallel experience, but there's something cognitively resonant. And then how you show up, how you are in Garago is very different than when you were in Austin, Texas, yeah. and, and when you were in the Northeast and wherever you are traveling in the world. Right? I mean, and that's what's so interesting about it is that there's no end to the complexity of Blackness and just like all the ways that we learn to code switch, how we move through space, how we, you know, sort of inhabit our bodies differently in different places. This year, I had the opportunity to go back to Jamaica with my father and work on a photo series there where we went back to all like where he was born, like the farm that he grew up Mm. on, like where his father was from and where a bunch of his ancestors are buried in Montego Bay. Like, you know, just he and I were talking about how it feels different to be like, we feel different in Jamaica. Like Mm. when you go back to a place where like 90% of the population is black, you know, when you look on the television, everybody in positions of authority is black everyone you encounter in public space is Black. You don't feel like an outsider in the way that even though he's lived in this country now for much longer than he ever lived in Jamaica, he has Mm -hmm. always still experienced himself as like not quite belonging, you know? And so when we're there, just, you know, your shoulders sit a little differently. You just feel part of a community in a way. And it's not to idealize Jamaica because Jamaica is like, it's got its own problems like every other place and it's a hot mess sometimes, but <laughs> but it's home. And the feeling of belonging that you experience when you're there is really different than like what that feels like in the United States. And so there's something to me that's really interesting about how art has created a space. The art practice combined with an ethnographic sensibility that comes from my training as an anthropologist has given me these tools to, to explore all of that. 
And so how do you now link ancestral veneration that you engage in as an academic, as an artist? You know, why is paying um, homage to the ancestors a critical component of your work? You know, I mean, I guess, you know, all I can say is, is that I think in my family, I always felt very connected to my ancestors. You know, mm. like as a kid, I there was nothing I loved more than going to visit my grandparents in Louisiana and like sitting in the living room with them while everybody's like drinking coffee and smoking cigarettes and like talking <laughs> about some shit that happened 30 years ago. <laughs> like it was yesterday. Like it was yesterday. <laughs> like people still mad about it. Um <laughs> You know, still feeling a way about it. And I just thought, like, I loved hearing those old stories. You know, like, I loved opening up the photo albums and, like, Mm. looking at old pictures of my grandparents or, like, seeing my parents as children or, you know, like that, you know, hearing these stories about even, even elders and ancestors I had never met but who felt very present for me because their names were constantly being evoked Mm. and the stories that people would tell about them. And so I I think growing up as a child, I thought about my ancestors a lot, but I didn't, most Black people growing up in the West, we've been kind of cut off from our traditions of ancestor veneration. Mm. So like that longing or like that call to reconnect with ancestral origins is often kind of thwarted because you feel like, well, like, what does that even look like? Like, how do you connect with ancestors? Right. And, you know, when I went to college, one of the first experiences I had, I've mentioned Omi Jones several times, but she and a number of other people that I knew at the university at that time were um, all practitioners of Orisha, of mm. you know, the, the, uh, the Yoruba tradition, honoring the Orisha who are natural, for, who are represented in all of the natural forces that, you know, we experience and observe on the earth. But also, you know, Orisha is really rooted in a practice of of honoring your ancestors. And like, that's the, that's the baseline. Like that's the stuff you do before you get to all the fancy Orisha stuff. The heart of the practice is really about honoring your ancestors and thinking about all the ways that the dead continue to act on and shape the lives of the living. And that part of the tradition just felt really natural and intuitive to me. And so mm. the ways that that shows up in my academic work is that, you know, in my academic work and my in my creative work is that I see my creative and my academic work as vehicles for doing deeper spiritual work that's about healing healing black people, you know, but also about healing our culture. So, you know, and ultimately trying to heal the planet. In the beginning of my career as an academic, I found myself feeling really fragmented, like, oh, I got to meet all these expectations and how am I going to prove that I'm smart enough and that I belong here and that, you know, I didn't like trick all these white people into giving me a PhD, (laughs) you know, (laughs) you know, like the deep, deep imposter syndrome. And then making art and being like, is it good enough? Is it pretty? You know, like all these things. And and now what I realize is that what drives the work is that is that desire, that sort of imperative to recuperate the stories of ancestors, to give voice to stories that we've not had um, the opportunity to tell, Mm. you know, and to really vindicate our people. You know, like that for me is what my work is about. It's about showing, you know, working black people, poor black people in ways that really illuminate and reveal their dignity, that reveal their beauty, that reveal their power and their resilience, you know, in the face of really violent social and structural conditions. And I think it's important to, you know, on the one hand, as we recognize all the ways that we have been violated as Black people in the West, it's also important to say that that, that experience of, of dehumanization and exclusion and exploitation 
it didn't it didn't destroy our capacity to experience joy it didn't destroy our capacity right. to create beauty and it doesn't and it and it and it does not have to diminish our capacity to continue to imagine other ways of being in the world that are not sort of always already defined by and constrained by the realities of white supremacy like we have to be able to imagine a future beyond white supremacy and i think that engaging with ancestors is a way to do that and that's the work that I'm trying that, you, you know, that I really see myself doing as an artist and as a scholar. And I also appreciate just this interesting duality that I think you're citing. For example, your mom, your mom is an artist and highly creative, but then also devout, born again Christian. Then there's this other thing that happens culturally, Orishas and anything that's, that's not Christian because it's like, oh, I don't believe in that, honey, you know? Yeah. But I think there's this interesting duality when you are of African descent, right? And given our own histories of being kidnapped and subsequently enslaved and the ways in which we've had to, as a people, adapt. For survival, you're adopting these Judeo-Christian beliefs because that's part of your survival. But why also, even in a lot of our Judeo-Christian practices, there are hints to different Yoruba and Ibu traditions as well, religious traditions, interwoven. It's a nice amalgamation, but we embody all of that. Body the ancestral, body the religious traditions, spirituality, and then we push that all together and we're here. You talk about that in your work. Yeah, I definitely do. I mean, I think, you know, so much of what it means to be Black in the West is about learning to sort of reconcile all of these contradictions that are internal and but are also social, you know, like the way that Caribbean, you know, people, like you say, I mean, will will perform a certain kind of pious Christianity on Sunday, and then the rest of the week, they, you know, when they have problems, they go and see like the Bush doctor, you know, right. or they go see the they go see the Obia woman, or and in my family, how we don't talk about that, like the fact that it is known that within recent memory, there were women in the family who were Obia women. You know, mm-hmm. and they were wise women. They were healers. They were people that they were highly respected in their communities. And this was known, right? But then when people moved to the United States, we stopped talking about that for the same reason that people stopped teaching. People didn't allow their children to speak Patois, you know, mm-hmm. like, because this is not going to serve you in the U.S. You need to, like, speak American English and you need to, you need to, like, get all of these tools so that you can be successful here. And I think at a certain point in my teens and in my early 20s, I think a lot of young Black people come into consciousness. I had a lot of anger around that. Like, mm. you you know, we lost these traditions and they were really important and people didn't hold on to them. But now, you know, I think I, I, I see it much more in the way that you described where it's like, well, people made choices because they were looking at the conditions that we were living in and like the, the environments that we were trying to get into, you know, my father didn't have a high school diploma until I was like in high school. You know what I'm saying? Like he went back mm-hmm. to school and got that stuff like as a grown man. He was like in his 30s when he got his diploma. Mm-hmm. And I think for him, he was kind of like this Patois stuff is not going to serve you. You need to go to school and you need to be you need to like succeed on the terms that are being laid out for you. And so now I think part of the work that I see myself doing and a lot of Black artists are doing right now is that work of kind of ancestral reclamation where we're going back and we're like, okay, we're going to recognize the obia and we're going to recognize the gospel music. You know, we're going to, we're going to hold on to the bush medicine and we're going to hold on to 
the PhD. Like there's no, it doesn't have to be a battle. Those are just the realities of who we are as Black people who have survived some of the most horrific human rights violations in history. We carry all of that stuff in us and it's all useful and it can all make for really beautiful work. Act two, The Road. What is your passion? I feel like it's a different answer every week, but um, <laughs> <laughs> this week it's like audiovisual projections. But um, <laughs> but in general, I think my passion right this second is spirit work. I'm really into ritual, creating ritual spaces that people can be a part of, like creating spaces for you know black people particularly, but anybody really. But you know to engage in you know a space of reflection to think about these kind of larger metaphysical and like cosmic questions that I think we all need to be grappling with right now. Like what kind of human beings do we want to be? What kind of planet do we want to live on? What kind of societies do we want to live in? Like all of those questions for me feel very pressing and urgent. Mm -hmm. And I feel like we live in a culture where we don't have deep collective rituals. And so there are a few things, there, there are not that many things that kind of bind us together as a, as a people. And so offering ritual is a way of creating spaces for community to be built, but also for people to heal themselves, you know, and to grow and deepen their consciousness. And so like, I think that's really where my head is at these days. I had the honor of participating in a tribute to the Black Dead called, it was an event called Honoring the Black Dead from Death to Reclamation or Divine Royalty. It was a really beautiful space that was about paying tribute to Black people who have died under violent circumstances, whether it's Mm. through encounters with the police or you know, experiences with violence in public, women who, Black women who have died um, at the hands of their partners, trans women who have been murdered by, you know, people who are afraid of, of, of trans folks. And so what I was able to offer in that space, there were, you know, people showing experimental films and it was really beautiful. And I basically shared a collective prayer for the Black dead. And it was like a nine page prayer that I just kind of channeled. <laughs> Where I was like, yo, we we as a people have to reclaim our power and we cannot do that until we heal the sources of our trauma. And we recognize that we have the capacity to create whatever kind of future we can imagine together collectively. And if we can imagine it, if we can envision it, we can make it. Spite of myself, I turned into like my pre I turned into like a preacher and and it became a space to just like pull people into deep ritual in a way that I think we don't generally have many opportunities like that in everyday life. And so I feel like right now that's really my passion. It's like Mm. going deep into ritual and using my art practice as a way to offer that to others. I'm not surprised you went into full preacher mode because you talked about having preachers too in your own family, right? So you are channeling and tapping into a skill that, I mean, maybe it's on a cellular level, you know, and your art is your ministry. I think that's really <laughs> true. I, I saw an interview years ago with Erica Badu. It's fully worth watching listeners that she did with the Red Bull Music Academy some years ago, like maybe like in 2010 or 2011. And somebody had asked her a question about her spiritual practice. And she was like, art is my religion. <laughs> and I wasn't even really making art like that then, but I was like, yes, <laughs> yes, that's 100 Finger snaps, right. finger snaps. Yeah. Finger snap. uh, uh, uh. yeah, like it was, I, I really like vibrated with that. And I was like, yeah, art is my religion. I think like art for me is just, it's just this space where I feel 
like it's as a black woman, there are very few spaces in this culture where you feel 100% free. Like I don't generally feel free as an academic, even when I'm enjoying my work, when I have to go and like deal with people in public, like, oh, I'm going to go buy a house or I'm going to like buy a car or whatever. You know, I got to put on like middle class black drag, (laughs) you know, to get what I need. But when I'm making art, when I'm in a performance space, when I'm with other black artists, I just feel like I can do anything. I feel expansive. Mm. And I think like having that experience where I have these sort of ephemeral moments of like embodied freedom, for me, I'm just like, how do I, how do I create, how do I recreate that feeling in every aspect of my life? Like, how do I take that same feeling of freedom that I feel when I'm in like wild art minds? And like bring that into the classroom and model that for my students and be like, the world doesn't need you to be another version of somebody else. The world needs you to be your full authentic self and bring your authentic talents and gifts to the problems that we're trying to trying to address. And like like when I see black women in public who I think are just like 100 who are operating in a space of freedom. I, I mean, like there's nothing that there's nothing that I find. There's nothing that moves me as much as that. It's like they're just walking superhero. Yeah. Yeah. You know? <laughs> I just like, like I live on. for that shit. Yeah. You know, one thing I wanted to ask you about, and I'm curious, right? Because you have different art, you know, you have artists that will experiment across different mediums. You have some that will say, oh, I'm going to do oil on canvas and then I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. What sort of inspired you to be in the medium of using visual art and photography and performance art. How did you get to that place where you're like, you know what, this is this is my sweet spot in terms of my creativity? Funny because I've tended to think of myself mostly as a writer. I think most of my life I was really kind of invested in the word. Even I think the images I make now feel very... Um, There's like a textual, there's like, they have like a textual quality. Like they feel like stories. When you look at them, you feel like you're Mm. walking into the middle of a story. And so I think that that writer's sensibility is still very much with me. But I also think, you know, becoming an academic where the sort of currency of our of our field is word. There's also a way in which, you know, when you're a scholar and you write about racism, it's not theoretical, you know, like you're writing about things, even when you're writing about, you know, Black populations that you might not be an insider in those communities, right? When you're writing about systems of racial inequality and how they affect living people, and you also have been in the position of being on the receiving end of those systems of inequality, there's just a part of me that just feels kind of tired talking about racism. Like, I'm like, I don't know how many more ways I can say that this stuff is racist. (laughs) <laughs> you know, so you're like, and, I'll show you. Yeah. I mean, and, there, and there's also like aspects of the black experience that I felt like I couldn't really get to through academic writing because they were so personal and so just like embodied that I wanted to be able to like I needed a space to be able to think about that in a way that wasn't constrained by language or having to justify why I felt the way that I felt. And so. There was a point where I wanted to, you know, I had I had bought a camera because my partner is a musician and he founded an orchestra that's based in Brooklyn 20 years ago. And we'd had the idea to make a documentary about his group, which is happening. That's a whole other thing that's not really in my hands anymore, which I'm actually kind of glad about. (laughs) Sidebar. (laughs) I'm like, I just dropped that little seed. Now take that plant and run with it. But I had bought this camera as, you know, because ostensibly I was going to like make single-handedly make this documentary about his group. Instead, I ended up like, you know, beginning to document my family's home places and taking portraits of different places and, and different people in my family. I wanted to take certain portraits of my family in South Florida. So the kind of Cliff Notes version 
generation is my father's family. When they left Jamaica, they moved to South Florida in the 1970s. Mm-hmm. And part of the reason why they ended up in South Florida was because my grandfather was part of a guest worker program that brought up literally hundreds of thousands of workers from the Anglophone Caribbean, mostly from Jamaica, the, the vast majority from Jamaica, but some people from Barbados and the Bahamas as well, mm-hmm. um, to work in the sugar industry in in South Florida between West Palm Beach and Miami. And so that's how we ended up um, in this little bitty town called South Bay outside of Belle Glade. And the soil there is like this rich black soil that people call the muck. Like it's mm. literally black and it's super fertile and you drop anything in that in that ground and it's going to grow. Wow. And I had always been kind of obsessed, like riding through the cane fields in South Florida because, you know, canes, I don't know if you've ever been in sugar cane fields, but there's like a hypnotic beauty to them. Like yeah. just how the, how the grasses kind of sway and, and seeing this black soil. And so I had this idea that I wanted to photograph all my family members on the muck, you know, so I went to my very like pragmatic West Indian aunts and I was like, I want to take you out to the muck. And like, I need to want to take these pictures of you barefoot wearing white in the dirt. And they were just like, what are you talking Like, We're not going to do that. <laughs> no. <laughs> so I felt a way about it. And, you know, and then I just started to have this idea like, okay, well, if, if nobody in the family wants to do it, maybe I'll just take the portrait. And once I sort of opened up to that possibility, all these characters kind of showed up. So this ancestor character showed up and then this like queen of the cane field showed up. And yeah. then my grandmother who had passed away like eight years earlier showed up and was like, I, I want to be in this. And I just went down to Florida with one of my cousins and I was like, okay, you're going to be my art assistant. Like, help me. I'm going to do this. Right. And we took all these photographs and it was just it was just so amazing. And I think that that was the moment when I realized like, oh, I can I can do anything with this art practice. And I also appreciated how much intellectual work goes into making really good art, because it was like all these things I understood about that place. Like the, I, I had a sort of intimate understanding of it. I had a scholarly understanding of it. And then I created an aesthetic understanding of that mm. place, you know. And that I felt like allowed me to tell a much more sort of well-rounded story about my people that like hit all the, that hit all the registers. And so that, that for me has been the most exciting thing about making art is how it allows me to use my scholar mind in ways that are really productive, but then to make things that touch people in ways that, that feel much more resonant than like writing a straight academic article or like giving a conference presentation. Where even the audience is quite limited. Yeah. So how do you find the the synergy across all of your identities, right? So I I get the intersection of how art reinforces the scholarly work and vice versa, right? So I get that. But how do you then function in this one physical body when you're embodying the multiplicity of these types of identities? Because... Mm -hmm. You know, sometimes I think that, you know, when we're in that creative space, oftentimes we have to pivot. Sometimes we don't want to, but we pivot. So how do you then find the balance to be able to, you know, be all of these different things? And what's that experience like? Because we talk about the duality of us just of being African descendants, especially here in the U.S. or on this side of the world and having to code switch and to balance this duality. I like to talk about triple identity consciousness in my own work. As a creative and a scholar, like, how do you even find that? I mean, I think that, and and I totally get what you're saying, because I think that for most of us, I mean, certainly in conversations I've had with Black women academics, you know, that sense of being constantly, you know, facing the constant pressure to compartmentalize yourself Mm -hmm. and say, you know, kind of have to make 
decisions between like, okay, am I going to be an academic or am I going to be an artist? Am I going to be a, a partner? Am I like, what am I doing? You know? And the pressure from the institution is always like, you only operate an academic register. I think for me, what's been really helpful is that making art, once you sort of tap into creative energy, like people act like creativity only belongs to artists. It doesn't. You know, it's just it's just artists sort of operationalize it in a different way. But everyone has the capacity to be creative, whether you believe that or not, you do have it. And I think that what being creative means is that being creative means that you take unconventional approaches to conventional problems has opened up in my life is that, you know, when I first started making art, you know, taking these photographs and like printing them out, they're these enormous prints. And, and I started doing gallery shows. A lot of my academic colleagues at my previous institution, they liked it. They thought that the art was amazing, but they were kind of like, this is kind of a waste of time. Like you're not going to get tenure <laughs> taking a bunch of pretty pictures, you know? And, and I, you know, I was kind of like, that's, that's so probably, offensive. Yeah. And I mean, and I, I mean, I, I'm of two minds about it. I think that it was advice that was offered from people who really cared about me and wanted me to be successful as an academic. But what I've come to understand is that you have to follow your own path. And following your own path means that there are times that you're going to do things that don't make sense to anybody but you because they're judging the choices that you're making based on how they would make those choices because mm. they're, they're, they're basically comparing your path to theirs. But what I've realized is that the kind of work I want to do and the kind of person I want to be in the world is going to require me to take a path that does not sort of always neatly align with the expected, you know, trajectory of a successful academic. When people were kind of like, yeah, this art thing is cute, but eh, I don't know. I just was kind of like, well, yeah, whatever. <laughs> like, I got to make this art because the art is not about a job. It's not about a paycheck. The art is like this thing that feeds me and drives me in a way that like is much more motivating than like the sort of like Damocles sword of like, you're not going to get tenure if you don't get your shit together. You know, right. like tenure by itself is not enough to sustain you over the light, over sort of like the course of your life. You have to have much deeper drives that push you to do the work that you do. And so for me, that's ancestors. And so I just kept making my art, <laughs> you know, I just kind of ignored all of that advice. And I was just like, I'll do the academic work. I will meet all of my obligations. So, you know, I taught all of my classes. I got very strong teaching reviews. I continued to publish in academic publications, you know, got a contract for my book. Like I did all those things, but I kept making my art because I knew that that work was important. When I went on the job market last year and I applied for a job ultimately, which is what brought me to California, I presented scholarly work that was also combined with creative work. So I had done a photography series about my mother's community in Louisiana that's being taken over by a petrochemical company from South Africa. I, you know, so I have like the art, the visual representation of that process. And then I have the scholarly analysis of how that shit happened, right. you know, and why and, and why I was so angry about it. And what was amazing to me was that when I gave that talk and I showed people the art that I had made, overwhelmingly, you know, people wanted to talk about theory and, you know, toxicity and exposure and racism and environmental racism and Jim Crow. Like people wanted to talk about that. But every time I gave that talk, people were like, so can we talk about this art? <laughs> and I was like, right. yeah, we can. You know, what I feel like has happened for me and, and what's sort of happening right now for me in my work is that I'm not interested in fragmenting or compartmentalizing myself. What I'm interested in is bringing all of myself together into the work that I do and using my creative capacities as an artist 
to rethink how I want to be an academic. And what I want is to engage audiences on lots of different kinds of registers. What I want is to be able to use my art practice as a form of knowledge production and to be able to use all of my skill sets to tell these stories that I think are really important. It's been really exciting for me to mm-hmm. see how how well people have responded to that. I appreciate just that juncture of where the hearts and mind meets and how you see your work as a whole sort of be in that space. I mean, because mm-hmm. it's so true about just the fact that when you're within the confines of academia, and particularly if you're a person of color and and a woman and a black woman specifically, that stuff is highly stressful and even unhealthy for us. We're, we're not there in numbers. We're dropping like flies, like literally we're dying because there is really no sort of space and we're engaged in an institution that not support us in our creativity and see the synergies in which we operate in, in our daily lives. And so for you to get to a place where I, I appreciate the the well-intentioned advice and I needed to do what I needed to do, but I'm doing it as part of a process so that I'm able to do the work, the art that I am truly passionate about, right? Mm-hmm. And so that's why I thought when you were talking about that, I'm like, oh, wow, that's highly offensive, right? Because in here you speak about how you view your art. It's, it's so intricately connected to the scholarship that for someone to say, well, you can't do one because that's a waste of time. It's almost like, yeah, but you have no idea how that and how the art informs the scholarship that you want me to produce in the powerful ways. And for you now to be in that place where it's like, let me show you. And then people are like, this is so cognitively sticky. Like I get it. And they want more. So, I mean, that's so affirming. Yeah. I mean, (laughs) like I write differently now. You know, like when I do act, when I'm, when I, my academic writing is a lot more, it's a lot more vulnerable. You yeah. know, I feel like I'm taking more risks. Like I'm just kind of putting shit out there. I'm like, here's how it feels to walk around the world in this black female body. Like in my Louisiana work, you know, I talk about a lot of stuff, like the fact that my mother had cancer when mm-hmm. I was five years old. And very likely that cancer was the result of having grown up in a community where she was exposed to toxic chemicals every day of her life until she was 19 years old mm-hmm. and left home. That she was that when my grandmother carried her in her body, she had been exposed. My grandmother was also exposed to those toxic chemicals from the time that she was two years old until she had my mother. And so like it was like when I wrote this essay called My Mother's Body, it was the most personal academic thing I had ever written. And I remember the first time I read it publicly, I wept the entire time I delivered that talk. And I remember thinking, like, I have bombed this. <laughs> like, I have humiliated myself in front of my colleagues. You know, I'm up here like a crying mess, you know. Oh, so you did an ugly cry. Yeah, putting all my mama's <laughs> shit out in the street, you know. And, and then afterwards, people came up and, and said, that was one of the most beautiful academic talks I've ever been to. Mm. How did you do that? You know, so it's like those moments where I I think like it is hard to show up as all of yourself as a black woman in academia. And for people who are navigating like, you know, being, you know, being being a woman, being queer, you know, being an immigrant, like there's all the things that you have to sort of it's very difficult to reconcile all these parts of yourself in an institution that wants to sort of put you in a box. Mm hmm. And tell you there's only one right way to do this. But I think the brilliance of, of Black people is that, you know, we know that 
there's lots of ways to get a thing done because our survival has required us to be very creative about how do we how do we navigate all of these structures that are really oriented towards our death? How do we navigate these institutions that are committed to killing us? And I made a promise to myself, you know, I grew up in a generation of Black feminist scholars where like, so many of our Black feminist elders died. June Jordan, Audre Lorde, Barbara Christian, Bebe Clark, call their names, you know, peace be upon those women. But it's like, I made a promise to myself. I'm like, oh, I ain't going to die. <laughs> I'm not going to let these, I'm not going to let this university kill me. No, right. because I think ancestors brought me here to do other kinds of work. So dying's not on the agenda. And if I'm going to die, I'm definitely not going to die for a university. Let's really let it be for something that, you know, that feels worthwhile. So in terms of the road that you've been on thus far, like, what are some of the lessons you've learned along the way? It's always funny, you know, like looking back, I, I'm always kind of ambivalent about how we sort of read failure, because I think there are things that in the moment feel like failure. And then when you look back on them, you're like, oh, actually, that kind of had to happen that way. Right. You know, even in, you know, in terms of my academic life, I do think that there were the institution where I was before, you know, I had a lot of challenges, you know, like I was constantly being told, like, you know, you're not moving fast enough. I mean, I, I was publishing regularly. I was presenting at conferences. I was giving talks, uh, you know, rendering service, getting, you know, excellent teaching evaluations. I was doing all the things. And yet I was constantly being told that I wasn't doing enough, <laughs> that the work was good enough and that I wasn't moving quickly enough. I think that there were times where I really sort of internalized that as a failure. But then I also think that in that moment, what was useful was like part of what I felt was so necessary about grounding into ancestor work was that I think in academia, it's very easy to lose your sense of who you are, hmm. you know? like to forget who you are and to forget what you come from. Like when we, I was talking to someone the other day and they were like, you know, our families don't know what we do as academics. Like they don't understand <laughs> half of the shit we do, you know? Like when you're up here complaining about like, I didn't get tenure or da, 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 your mother, your mother has no idea what that means. What she does know is her baby has a PhD. Right. And is a doctor. <laughs> you know, like nobody is internalizing the failures in the way that we internalize them once we become sort of committed to an institutionalized form of thinking about our lives. You know, like once we become committed to like the institution's vision of how things should be done, you know, and I think like for me, the last few years have really been about coming out of like the fog of academia where it's you're so absorbed with trying to prove yourself in that space that you forget you it's almost like you sort of deliberately shrink your world and it's all about what's happening within your university and what your dean thinks about you and making art and really grounding back into creative community for me has been about like expanding my world again and being like mm. oh there's a big world out here and everywhere I go, people think I'm smart. <laughs> you know, like I never have to prove that I'm smart when I talk to my grandparents or I never have to prove that I'm smart when I go and talk to people in the community about the work I do and why I do it and, and why it needs to be done. You know, like I am legible in, in a whole lot of places outside of academia. And the fact that these people in the institution don't get me is not my fault. The lesson that I took from all of that is that I don't need to contort myself to fit anybody's expectation. When my sense of purpose is really strong, then it doesn't matter what anybody else thinks. Sharing with a friend this afternoon about like coming into this deep understanding where I was like, there was a point when I was struggling where I was like, man, maybe I'm doing this wrong or like maybe I screwed up and I maybe, oh man, I spent that time doing this and I really should have focused on getting this getting this article done or getting this book done or whatever. And I realized like what I've come to understand is is that when I am on my path, I can't make a mistake. But if I'm doing me, how how can I fail at being me? I can't. Act three, where we land. 
I think that there's something, you know, that's, that's the, that's like the, the value of engaging with ancestors because you can really appreciate all the ways that they struggled, but you also are able to learn from their example and to mm-hmm. say like, okay, these were the choices that were available to women, to black women in the academy at a certain moment. And now I see black women academics who are making work that's just so like, like when Sadia Hartman won a MacArthur, I was just I like, know. what? <laughs> what? And I, I read that, that awesome. book, Wayward Lives, Beautiful Experiments. Like it is such an important book for people who are listening. If you haven't read it, please go out and buy it like today, because the ways that she is telling black women's stories and really challenging what it means to write a history about black people Mm-hmm. When we know that the archive doesn't account for us. And it's just, but the thing about it, India, is like, it's just so beautiful. Mm. It's just so beautifully written. And reading it, I'm like, oh, academic work can be beautiful and rigorous and moving and like make you weep, you know? Yeah. And and the best work should do that, you know? Because again, we're not writing about like, none of this stuff is theoretical in that sense. We're writing about real people who actually live. And whose lives were in some ways really violently overdetermined by these conditions of, of white supremacy that they lived under. And there's something about writing a book that's about like how young black women created this sort of blueprint for what it means to be free. And and you and I are like the we're like the embodiment of that. Like we are basically like the realization of a prayer that was whispered like a hundred years ago. You just came off of this really great exhibit, the showing that you had um, for your work called Adjust Your Eyes for This Darkness. But, you know, <laughs> what are what are you up to now? What, what are some of your latest projects? I'm doing a lot of performance art, part of a show of, called Emphone, Women Photographers of the African Diaspora. And that exhibit will be happening at the Jacob Lawrence Gallery in Seattle. The exhibit is named after a photographer named Emphone Essien, who passed away in the early 2000s when she was, I think, 32 or 33 years old from a particularly aggressive form of breast cancer. And I remember reading an article about her and seeing her photographs in Essence Magazine back when I still subscribed to Essence Magazine. And I remember just thinking like her photographs were so beautiful and I cut one of them out and like framed it and it was in my apartment for years. And then like a month and a half ago, I got asked to be a part of this show that's honoring her legacy and you know, is about centering the work of Black women photographers. And so, See how things come like, sir, I mean, it's really it's deep. Like full circle, yeah. It's really deep. The ancestors are very good. And so, you know, I, I'm really excited about that. Um, you know, I had my first photo exhibit, um, like my very first, two years ago in a very small gallery, like super local gallery in central Pennsylvania. And now, you know, this past year, I've had work hanging in the National Gallery in Jamaica and Kingston. I'm doing, you know, showing work here in Oakland. And now I'm showing work in Seattle. I'm, you know, just about done with my first book project on Black women's social movements in Nicaragua. And yeah, so, you know, that'll be coming out from Rutgers University Press in the next year once I turn it into my editor. Um, (laughs) But I'm very close. I'm in the last chapter. And, you know, and in the meantime, there's already, you know, I'm I'm already making um, significant progress on the project about Louisiana and kind of the racial politics of energy production and toxic exposure. So, you know, I just feel a lot of momentum around my work. Um, I feel really motivated, you know, Mm. and my it's not like 
you know, some days you feel like you're fighting your work. And then other days you're kind of like, things are really good and you're in love with your work. And so right now I feel very like in love with my work (laughs) and it's really energizing. So I'm happy about that. A website, an organization, someplace where if they wanted to see your showings, if they wanted to contribute, how do they do that? Sure. I'm super, um, I'm very digital. And so my website, you can check out more about my work. Site is (laughs) CourtneyDesireeMorris.com. And my user handle on Instagram is Creole Maroon. Thank you. Thank you so much, Dr. Courtney Desiree Morris, for joining us and sharing your journey of belonging to Blackness. Thank you so much. It was wonderful to be here. There you have it. The journey isn't over, but this episode is. Until next time, peace.